Welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Jocelyn Caldwell, Vice President of Workforce Strategy and Org Development at Walmart. Thanks to our sponsors, Polynode. Harness the full power of organizational network analysis with Polynode. With one-click data integrations and built-in relationship-based surveys, Polynode enables people analytics practitioners to move from data to insights faster. To learn more and see why Polynode is trusted by some of the most innovative companies in the world today, book a demo at polynode.com slash directionally correct. People from Louisiana, especially like 20-year-olds, move there just to be cool. And I, I can't like, you know, I walked from downtown off to like this place to get crawfish and shit. And I was like, yeah, I could, I could see that. I could see being like 23 and be like, this is the coolest shit ever. But three years later, be like, this is unsustainable. This is yeah. no, pla- no place to live. There was a pilgrimage of people that I grew up with that lived in New Orleans in their 20s and early 30s that are all back in my hometown now. Um and then oh, they yeah. could always, for the rest of their life, say they were cool at one point, but now they're living in the hotels. So they're not, they were cool. So they're, they're good, you know, because they were now, I don't know. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. It's like uh, people that move to like New York City or LA. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go, like, you got to go off. It's like an adventure, like an archetype. You got to mm-hmm. go, like, live your life and do your thing. But yeah, it's the hero's journey. You know, you got to go to New York or New Orleans and <laughs> live it up. And then, I don't know find the dragon slay them and then find a, a princess and settle down with them i i get the allure like new orleans is such a it, it's a cool it's a unique city like there's so many cities that are just like glass boxes and they look like nothing and it could look like any other city and new orleans is totally unique but then again it's it's dirty as hell it's there's nothing really there i mean it, it's got a lot of culture and a lot of character, but well, you notice like no companies ever relocate their headquarters to New Orleans. No, <laughs> like that's not an accident, and it's because they're not. I'm not going to say culturally they're anti-work. It's just they I don't will. Work. <laughs> I will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they they definitely you know they're they're just hanging out and kind of partying and stuff. That was the biggest shock I had moving to Louisiana. It's like, oh man, like. You, you'll get your food, but it's going to take a while. And there's not a whole lot of urgency for anything. Yeah. Well, it looks like Jocelyn joined us. How you doing, Jocelyn? Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm loving those glasses, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, these are my signature glasses. I'm always wearing them. And so thank you. And everyone's always commenting on them. But they are more for utility because I cannot see anything without them. Now, is that a real background or is that a fake background? That's one of your backgrounds that I just chose, but it's beautiful, isn't oh, it? Oh, okay. I was about to be oh. really impressed here. Yeah, I was yeah, like, wow, yeah. you got a, a piano and everything? Yeah, piano yeah, player? yeah, yeah. I'm working from home today. I didn't want you all to see um, my beautiful kitchen. <laughs> just enough. in your, your <laughs> lovely mansion here exactly yeah. yeah scott i love the microphone i need a microphone that's oh uh, cole bought this for me thank you cole <laughs> it was like a christmas gift last year <laughs> <laughs> i think this is the first time he used it a this, year this later this might be the first yeah. time he used yeah. it yeah yeah so well i i i think of you i think a lot of positive things about you jocelyn but one of the things that i think about you every time i do is that you used to work with one of our previous guests, 
Dr. Love, Zach Love, friend of Dr. the podcast. Dr. Love, yes. So, I don't know. How did you two meet? And and tell me about, and, and maybe that'll weave into like your career story. So I don't know. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, Dr. Love, Zach and I met at TIAA where we were building out the workforce analytics and planning function. Um, he was just fresh off of his PhD um, just had really interesting background, especially around his dissertation and engagement. And, um, and I was leading the team at the time. And so brought him on to be one of our lead analysts. And, um, and he went on just to do some phenomenal work um, around um, diversity, inclusion, and equity, engagement. I'm sure maybe he's touched on some of it in, in the podcast. Um, but, he mostly talked uh, about playing keyboard in his band. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, and so if we want to, we can, you know, delve into a little bit into my into my career journey. Yeah, um, I'd love to learn I'm, more about it. I actually yeah. don't know about it, so I'd love to learn. Yeah, I'm always interested in others' career journeys, so that's why I like to share mine, because um, I just think that oftentimes when we come out of college, we... Um, there's two, there's two paths. One, we know exactly what we want to do. And the other is we just kind of, you know, discover it along the way. I will say that I was one of those that discovered my passions along the way. I, um, graduated from Clemson university. I won't, I won't tell you the year, um, <laughs> with, uh, with an electrical engineering degree. Well, so, can I ask, were they good at football then or were they not good at football? Because that'll they'll kind of give us the period of time. So we were pretty good. We were okay. probably winning the ACC, maybe runners up. My 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 fondest, not my fondest memory, but what I remember the most about our football team then was, okay, I'm going to date myself. Deion Sanders <laughs> was playing for Florida State. Oh, dang. He was legit. <laughs> and, yeah, he was legit. He was in Death Valley. We were winning. He was returning either a punt or a kickoff and basically pointed to the end zone and proceeded to run the ball back, scored nice. the touchdown, and we lost. So um, electrical engineering from, from Clemson. And wait, I wait, did to, that, that's your fondest memory of Clemson? No, it's, I, had, I had to say that's my most, that I remember that. I had most, to vivid, most vivid memory. That. Yeah, most okay. memory, because that's not fondest, because I, <laughs> no, I had no, to think no. about that. Because I said, it's like no, a that's Babe Ruth calling his shot moment. Exactly. Yeah. That's the wrong Against word you. choice. Yeah. That's what I remember. So every time I see Dion, I'm like, oh, I remember him. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the truth, right? You know, I don't think this, yeah. in, unless you've seen him like. Well, he was a dual sport time. athlete, and that's very like, rare. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, yeah. Bo Jackson or kind of something like that, you know? Yeah. So we could easily turn this into a sports podcast because I'm a we big can. sports fan. But, um, um, that's not why we're here today. So no. um, electrical engineering, Clemson. Um, and why I did that was because I was always told that I was good in math and science. And so during that time, you're good in math and science. You think about the STEM field, engineering, mm -hmm. especially as a young you know, African-American woman um, growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, you know, that was just like, you know, something that was unheard of, you know, so if someone could go on to be like an electrical engineer, that was great because that's a field that didn't have much diversity. So fast forward, I, I'd spent my first three years in 
steel-toed boots and hard hats, <laughs> working in um, in manufacturing plants, you know, from Pennsylvania, Altoona, Pennsylvania, to Amarillo, Texas, um, designing and implementing, um, you know, equipment um, for Owens Corning, fiberglass, and then General Electric. Found out very quickly that this is not my life's work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and went on, got married, went on to work um, for General Electric in North Carolina. And I don't know if you all recall when Jack Welch came and said that, you know, General Electric will be, you know, Six Sigma company by 2000. So yeah. I was bit by the Six Sigma bug. And so I became a Six, Six Sigma black belt, um, went on to become a master black belt. And that really defined my career for probably the next 15, 15 years. So yeah. did large, large transformations for GE, um, Westinghouse, um, and then moved to our public pension plan. And what I always like to say about my career is I came to an inflection point and it was because I was leading these large transformations doing process reengineering, the implications of which just streamlining waste out of the process, really transforming operating models. And so the operating models were becoming very effective, efficient, automation was key, but we were leaving people behind. Mm. And that didn't sit well with me. I like to call myself an institutionalist. I think companies can make money, be profitable and do good. And we weren't retraining, we weren't reskilling the workforce. And so mm-hmm. I started to go on the quest of how do we retrain and reskill workforce when something like this happens? Because we know we're going to have to continually become more effective. Cole. Well, can I ask you a question about that? Because that's kind sure. of a, a running question I've had throughout my whole career, which is like, does training and reskilling, does it work? And if it does, how does it work effectively? So I think it works effectively when we can anticipate proactively what the new skill is, where I've seen you, I think the military does this very well. And in certain manufacturing automation um, areas, we've done it well, where you can take like skills that you have today You know that Mm -hmm. that skill is going to evolve. The jobs are going to evolve and you're going to need something very similar two years from now, Cole. I've seen where that works well. Where I've seen it doesn't work well is we have ambiguity about the job. We have Mm -hmm. ambiguity about the person's existing skills and we don't anticipate and we're not proactive. So now what happens is you do a restructure, you streamline, you now have a workforce that's not ready for the new jobs. And so it takes anticipation. You need to be proactive. You need to understand a lot more about your workforce and the jobs than you do today. And I haven't seen many industries or companies that have really, you know, unlocked that yet. Interesting. Okay. What does that mean for the workforce in general? I mean, uh, you know, the world's changing at such a rapid pace. We got to keep up with new demands and we need uh, new skills from employees. Uh, does that mean like hiring people with fungible skills in the future because you need to change them over or does that, is it all training? How, how do you approach it? And like, obviously it's a nuanced issue. Yeah, I think it's hiring 
you need to, un first of all, we as hiring managers, we need to understand the minimum set of fungible skills we should be hiring for. I think that is very ambiguous and it oscillates depending on who you ask. I think there's a yeah. minimum set that we should think about. For example, I always like to think about today in today's world, data acumen is a minimum, minimum <laughs> skill set that you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for most right? jobs, absolutely. For, yeah. for most jobs. But if you think about it, we don't necessarily, we aren't that transparent about that. Because from data acumen, you can think about, you know, just the different levels. You can think about whether you can do analytics, whether you can storytell. But at the end of the day, if you're not good with data in most jobs, it, it's going to be very difficult for you to transition to other roles. Secondly, Absolutely. secondly, what we need to understand is what are the skills that we have today in our workforce that can be translated because we don't have a taxonomy today. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Everybody, you know, we don't have a common language of talking about skills today. And I think that's an impediment to being able to transition and move people in the workforce and reskill and upskill them. Well, let me, let me ask about that. Cause you had mentioned something earlier about, you know, you had to project what the skills in the future need to be, and then we can kind of try to create redevelopment programs to get us to those skills. How good at we are good? How good are we at predicting the skills that are going to be needed in the future? Because I, I, a person, my personal perspective is like we're like a coin flip. Like sometimes we get it, and sometimes we don't. Yeah, and and how far out as well, and how right? far out too. Yeah, and, and if you think about any good prediction tool or model you, you can't go out but so far right so you know three to five years i think then you have a level of confidence um that makes sense i don't think that we are good at it because i think that we're trying to boil the ocean yeah. if you think about certain certain roles they kind of aren't going to stay the same they may evolve at a slower pace but there are other roles and this goes back to workforce segmentation there are other roles, like if you are, you know, in technology, if you're in tech, if you're in software engineering, those roles are going to evolve very quickly. If you think about AI, AI is going to impact certain roles, and they're the roles of the knowledge worker, very at a fast pace. Those are the roles that we need to focus on and understanding how they're going to evolve, what are their skill sets are going to be. But we are nowhere close to getting it right now. We don't. Do you have we, do you have like a perspective on which type of roles societally are going to be impacted the most and least by AI? And then I'd love to ask you after that about how AI you actually use it to do workforce planning effectively too. Yeah, I would. So the research that I've been reading on AI and the impact on the workforce says that it's actually going to impact the knowledge worker more than the frontline worker because the frontline worker has tasks that necessarily aren't going to be impacted by AI. If you think about an HVAC technician, right? You're always going to need an HVAC technician. You're going to need an electrician. You're going to need that frontline worker in certain roles 
and those roles aren't going to be as impacted by AI. However, if you think about um, a legal assistant, if you think about a data analyst, if you think about a recruiter, those kinds of roles that if we understand more about the day-to-day tasks and leverage AI for those tasks, they could be impacted and it could make those roles be more productive because they can go on to do more strategic, um, you know, strategic tasks than they are doing today because a lot of the tasks they are doing are repetitive. Um, they are kind of manual in nature. And so we can leverage AI to do those tasks. Um, that's kind of what, what I've been reading and, and the difference between the two. I think you're in a really tough position too, because like uh, Walmart is absolutely massive, right? They're probably like a million employees total and there's a a gazillion jobs there. Right. And they're all different. They're all need to be treated differently. How do you manage this? Or like, how how do you differentiate different roles and like which ones can be, uh, you know, automated, et cetera. Yeah. First of all, you know, we, we at Walmart see AI as something that, will augment our workforce, not necessarily mm-hmm. replace. And I think that that's key because then what it does is it helps us to experiment and understand and be innovative about how that will occur. But to answer your question, Scott, you have to take a segmentation approach, right? If you think about our workforce, we can think about it in different segments. And then you focus on the segments that you think are going to be most impacted by AI and you really start innovation and understanding more about that segment more and more. Um, you know, we've got over 2 million associates across 2 the million. globe. There you go. Yeah. Right. And they are, you know, a lot, you know, the majority of them are frontline. And so if yeah. you think about our frontline um, associates versus, you know, our associates that are doing some of these tasks that can be augmented by AI, that's how we think about it in that segment that net segmentation model. Um, and that's how, that's how we are approaching it. Can, can you uh, hook me up with one of those vests like that a greeter would use? <laughs> absolutely. Like, absolutely. Just, Let's talk know, after this. I think you I would be a good around town. Scott. I think that <laughs> I would be an yeah. awesome greeter. Yeah. 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 And if you think about, you know, that's a role that we absolutely, you know, we want, we want you greeting our, you know, See, our I, I thought they had an age cutoff for that role like i thought you had to be I, seven years I, old or older I, yeah I am, not, I am not going there with you cole i'm not going there <laughs> he's absolutely more than welcome to become one of our creators yeah so, i think yeah. they do a fantastic job i actually i want to get back to your career here for a second so you, you spent like 15 years doing the Lean Six Sigma yeah. work, yeah. and I, I assume that got you around like 2015-ish timeframe. Um, yeah. What led you to go from doing that to into the workforce planning and the kind of the HR side of things? Yeah, so um, I started, you know, getting higher education, pursuing, pursuing my doctorate um, in mm-hmm. org change, um, org learning, and moved on and actually worked for Howard University because I wanted to understand and be part of an academy um, so that I could understand the theory behind some of what I was seeing around, you know, how do we understand adult learning theories around, you know, upskilling, reskilling, 
um, which is you know, part of my quest not to leave, um, not to leave the workforce behind. Then I went to work for TIAA. To make a long story short, transformations. Our CHRO at that time, Skip Spriggs, asked me to come in and do a transformation around workforce planning at TIAA. Did that and he wanted to make it a permanent function. Very forward thinking. And so asked me to come and lead people analytics um, and workforce planning. And so that's how that's how I started. And that was about in 2017, 2000, you know, 2016, 17 timeframe. So the question on everyone's mind, are industrial engineers better at people analytics than the social (laughs) sciences? Tell tell us what your real perspective here is, Jocelyn. I think it takes both. I think it takes IO psychologists, industrial engineers, um, because it's, you know, I call it the, it's the qual and the the quant. One of the, you know, what I found is um, IO psychologists, they bring both the quant and the qual and they're social scientists, but industrial engineers bring knowledge of like large scale planning concepts. I'd spent quite a bit of my career in supply chain as well. And so I think about like inventory management, you know, I did master planning for, you know, a pretty large business in um, at GE. So I think about how you plan for the workforce very much in the way that I think about supply chain planning. So if you marry the two, then I think that you've got a great team that comes at the problem from, you know, different perspectives that just really, really enriches the solutions that you derive. I think this is one of the most like unique things we've found in the podcast. We've, we've interviewed uh, just a million people and just the diversity of backgrounds that enable people later on is really, really stark. And uh, obviously you're employing, it must be electrical engineering or engineering sort of concepts must enable you to, uh, you know, manage the organization of people in a way that, you know, you just couldn't do it from other perspectives. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's the systems piece of it, you know, systems thinking if you, if the, and this goes back to the conversation we had earlier around reskilling, upskilling. So if you think about my skill set, being able to translate that skill set around statistical analysis, statistical modeling, I don't know if it would be obvious with my background in data analytics, statistical analysis from Six Sigma, supply chain planning, that I would wind up, you know, leading yeah. workforce planning, right? And, but they're absolutely translatable, translatable skills. And that's the kind of work that we need to do across all, you know, what I call job families. Because if we mm-hmm. can understand what are those translatable skills, then now when we receive, you know, someone's resume, and they're outlining their experiences, their skills, their abilities, Mm -hmm. then we are easily able to translate it to, you know, some of the openings that we have and as well as predict maybe what they could be a good fit for in the future. Yeah, I actually love that. So I've got a little bit of a background in Lean and Six Sigma. And one of the things I really appreciate about those conceptually is they give a common frame and terminology for people with like a social sciences background and people with the engineering background to tackle the same problems in the same way. And things like root cause analysis 
is an incredibly powerful tool to have in your toolkit. And frankly, I find that it's not a way that a lot of people analytics folks that don't have that type of background think about things. And so it's definitely a tool that needs to be in our collective tool chest for sure. I am curious though, right now, and and correct me if, if you see things differently, but right now I feel like workforce planning is really hot. It's like all the rage and it, it hadn't necessarily been for the, for, in my opinion, since like the 2010, 2012 time, time frame. but from, okay. you know, 22 onward workforce planning has been really, really hot. Why do you think that is? And, and what are you seeing kind of in the, the winds of change that are bl- making it blow in this direction? I think first of all, coming out of COVID mm-hmm. where, you know, you had just a level of uncertainty um, around, you know, work from home, remote work, how productive um, are our employees or our associates. I think most companies are wanting to answer the question, what is the right size and mix of my workforce, period? Mm-hmm. How much does that workforce cost? And how much can I leverage that workforce in many, many different ways? So the right people, right job, right time. I think we've all heard it. But I think it's critically important now because of the ever-changing market. You know, you've got the market coming out of COVID. You now, you know, saw the upswing in the economy. Now we've got a bit of a downturn. And if we're not able to model and predict kind of the workforce and that workforce mix, what you're seeing is these large swings. You're seeing that we staff up, then we begin to reduce the workforce. Yeah. And I think our leaders are now seeing that workforce planning, good workforce planning forecasting is the answer or the solution to stabilize that workforce over a longer period of time so that you don't have these large swings. I mean, those, those large swings also damage your relationship with your customers and your employees, too. And like your employee brand, for- right? Absolutely. If you, think, Absolutely. If, you think of, if you think about it, if you think about the companies that a year and a half ago, they were hiring, 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 hiring. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. a quarter or two quarters later, you're reading the headlines that, you know, they're having this big downsizing. And so if you think about the damage that does to your employer brand versus the companies that have just been stable and they have a great employer brand because you feel as if you have a bit, I mean, you know, you can't guarantee security, but you feel as if you have a bit more security. The company understands exactly their workforce at a, at a higher level. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that does well for your employer brand. What I see. Yeah, if I, if I never had to read another CEO letter for them apologizing for overhiring as they do a layoff, I could sleep a little easier at night, you know? And, it, it, and workforce planning allows us to do that more effectively. Exactly. And I also think that going back to AI, workforce planning also will answer the question what is the impact that AI is going to have on my workforce? Yeah. If you think about across, many other functions within the organization, the workforce planning function, I think it's uniquely situated to be able to answer that question 
for for most CEOs. Yeah. I mean, this is why you'll see like Japanese companies will have like a, a one-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, all the way up to like a 500-year plan for their company. And obviously you can't really predict with any sort of real certainty that far yeah. out, but at least you're planning and you can adjust on the fly. It doesn't yeah. have to be exactly right. Just at least move it in the correct direction. Yeah, would you say they're directionally correct, perhaps? <laughs> Cole, Cole yeah. used to get on me for making this yeah. joke. This is, yeah. this is so funny that he's doing it now. <laughs> Goes yeah. full circle, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Cole, you mentioned something around kind of the evolution of workforce planning. Mm -hmm. I'll just give my perspective. You know, if we think about it, you have like the short-term planning cycles tied to people analytics. You know, can we get that right? Can we understand, you know, those short-term models and, and forecasting? Then can we move to, you know, more dynamic forecasting? Can we move to more prediction? Where I think that we're going to be able to add more value in the future is when we are predicting, not only predicting the workforce, but predicting the jobs and the skills. Interesting. I think that's the holy grail, like to be able to uh, automatically do job analysis on the fly. And then the, the platinum goal is to do future oriented job analysis on the fly. It, exactly, because it's so dynamic, right? And oh, so yeah. you have this oh, yeah. dynamic workforce that's ever changing that we've been focused on, right? That's what people analytics, when I was, you know, leader of people analytics, lived, breathed, that's every single day. Can we understand more and more about our workforce from many, many different um, respects? And then once we do that, then can we predict it? But we've stopped predicting the changes and forecasting our roles and our jobs and our skills. So now we kept those constant in our models where they're, where they're changing. Mm -hmm. And we need to now pivot to think about how do we build models around our changing and evolving skills and jobs and then we can marry the two mm -hmm. it's also important to like listen to outside sources beyond just like what you see in the data internally because i can only tell you so much that that's where because like the, all see the rapid change a, a year and a half ago we never heard of chat gbt we never heard of Gen exactly now, exactly. now it's pervasive exactly and well, so that and that that's what's impacting you know those environmental scans you see now mm. what's going to impact your your roles. And so AI, external, now coming internally, impacting our roles and what do they look like? And so I also say from a skill set, Cole, you are talking IO, industrial engineering. I think we're going to mm -hmm. start leveraging the industrial engineering a little bit more. Because when you think well, about the evolution of jobs and job design, you do have the IO perspective, perspective on it, mm -hmm. but then you do have the IE perspective on it and understanding the tasks. You, we have to begin yeah. to understand the work. And there's this concept I have called task efficacy. If we are going to understand AI impact on the workforce, we then need to understand AI and the impact on the work. And the work is task-based. And so how much efficacy will AI be able to provide us to a task that a human performed in the past? 
Well, and just just to dig in here because I'm I'm not as familiar with the IE space, the industrial engineering space. What what does the industrial engineering bring to answering these kind of task based questions? Like, what is the kind of the the unique superpower that they have? Yeah, they they understand task and process. So an okay. IE is the person that's going to go in and they're going to deconstruct the day-to-day tasks of that job, not the job analysis, because that's mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, it's a bit of job analysis, but it's more of what is that person? That's the boring part. <laughs> <laughs> what is that person actually doing and how much time are they spending on it to mm-hmm. unlock productivity? And so- This is like really old school IO psych where like actually time and motion studies. This time and motion studies. I think that that there's going to be a research. I think that that's going to come back because at the end of the day, if we mm-hmm. aren't understanding the time allocated to tasks and then yeah. people's efficacy to those tasks to be able then to replace it with AI, then how will we mm-hmm. ever understand the productivity gain that we'll have? Yeah, that's actually my prediction is that the way, because I agree with you that AI is going to mostly uh, you know, disrupt kind of knowledge worker jobs in, in the near term, but how is it ever going to stretch into kind of, you know, service sector jobs or, or jobs just people do with their hands? Like, um, I think it's going to be the ability to break it down task by task. And going through and saying, how could it augment here? How could it augment there? Because exactly. it, it eventually will permeate. Like I think about like handheld devices that, you know, service sector folks use. Well, you're eventually going to start having AI applications on those handheld devices. And so it will permeate through those roles, just like it does through knowledge worker roles in the moment. Exactly. Yeah. And when that happens, we're going to need to reconstruct our jobs. Because then jobs are going to look differently. Well, Jocelyn, I don't know if you know what this is that we're about to bring up, but would you like to participate in the confusion matrix? (laughs) Sure. The confusion matrix. (laughs) How how nervous are you from like one to uh, grad student studying for comprehensive exams? (laughs) Oh, wow. Did you just say grad student studying for conference? That's, that's been a while. That's been a while. They, they get all neurotic, you know? They get kind of crazy. I know. I know. <laughs> so I'd say I'm, uh, probably was, an, I'm probably about an eight. Let's say an, an eight. eight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty nervous. That's pretty nervous. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring you down to a two. It's, 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 okay. it's fun. Okay. This is the all fun right. part of the podcast. <laughs> Right. No, no stress. This is a little, we'll do a little super random. Uh, and, and Cole will be the arbiter of truth here. So like, if you give oh. answers that please him, he will make you a social media tile <laughs> that you can share online. <laughs> and uh, if you don't, then uh, he'll probably make you a social media tile that you can share online. You know, it doesn't okay. matter. Okay. okay. <laughs> Th- this is all from my brain. So it probably tells you a little more about me than you. You know, let's put it that way. But uh, do you ever get starstruck, Jocelyn? No. No, you meet you meet someone famous. No big deal. No, no big deal. It's the glasses. She's just like she's got her protective shield. She can she can face any any foe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm amazed. I'm like I don't I don't have this superpower. Yeah, for I don't know for some reason it's. I just they're 
they're people, right? And yeah, I guess because I'm so analytical, I think about, you know, what their lives must be like. And I just don't think that it's as great as we think it is. And so you I mean, should be I, kind I watch, and nice and yeah. I, I watch people like walk up to Cole and they're all starstruck. I mean, like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Cole, Cole is the exception. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. What about you, Cole? Do you, do you get starstruck? You ever meet someone famous? Uh, I actually, I mean, I, I haven't been around that many like celebrity type people, but I prefer like to not talk to them just because I imagine that they're, it's kind of like to Jocelyn's point, I imagine their mm, existence yeah. is kind of miserable <laughs> in public. And so I'd rather not contribute to that if, uh, and two, you know, they say never meet your heroes. Like when you do get to talk to somebody, you realize, oh, they're just a human being. You know, they're yeah. not a not that some, special person. Something special. You know, it's like they probably experience the weather the same way that you do. <laughs> I, I, sh I should hope so. <laughs> That'd yeah. be really weird if they didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of special, hey, uh, Jocelyn, do you have any mundane superpowers? This or do you, do you have any that you would that you wish you had? So, yeah, what's a superpower what you wish you had? What's the superpower? Like knowing when, like the street light was going to change to green. Ooh, I wish good. I could see. I wish I could see what people were thinking. Oh, oh. why? Because I think I would become a better communicator. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. If you could see what people were thinking, would you even need to communicate is a question I would have. I, I think so. <laughs> uh, I think one of the most powerful things, and like I, I struggle with it, and I, I think that it would help out a bunch of people, is just perspective taking, just understanding yeah. what that, uh, that situation that that other person's in and what they might need out of the situation. I mean, like you just like what your boss is looking for, what, what your coworkers are looking for, what customers are looking for. It, but it's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard because I'll give an example. So we're on this podcast right now. You're asking me questions. Mm -hmm. I'm answering them. But as I'm answering them, I'm like, is that, is this relevant? Right? Is it, is it, is it something that, you know, is, is it, is it posing or causing another question that's in your mind, but then you don't want to answer? So I'm spending two minutes talking about something that you would rather I be talking about something else. Well, I'll take some of the pressure off, Jocelyn. Anything goes on this podcast, oh, and there yeah. are no, there's yeah. no pressure to like, you know, be informative or something. Yeah, we're yeah. just genuinely curious. Yeah, and that and that's why, because I'm curious, because I think that that's when you become and you create that shared understanding, which I think mm -hmm. that today we just don't have because I think we talk past each other so much. Is where I was going. Yeah, I, I was thinking in my mind both people could read each other's minds and oh, then you wouldn't yeah. i'm thinking like telepathy oh, you know okay, not, okay, not yeah. like yeah like that's why i'm thinking not i was like yeah that sounded dumb when i said it out loud but you know tomato <laughs> tomato <laughs> no, 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 no. i mean uh here we'll, we'll wrap it up here speaking of like other hard-hitting topics here i just came back from louisiana and i, I know you're from the uh, uh south carolina area i don't know if it's the same but shrimp or crab which you prefer crab Crab, blue crab, crab all day long. All day long. I just had some over the holiday. I don't know if this is a controversial question, but which Carolina is the real Carolina? Oh, Do you yeah. have a stake in this? 
Absolutely, South Carolina. Okay. Do you do you go as far to say what you just say Carolina and expect people to know it's South Carolina? Because I know people from North Carolina do that sometimes. Do so that. what do you? Yeah. Yeah, they I'm just do like that. you realize there's two of you, right? Two of them, right? And that's why I said South <laughs> yeah. Carolina because it's like, oh, I'm from <laughs> South Carolina, and everyone says, oh, well, what part of Charlotte do you live in? I'm like, that's North Carolina. <laughs> that's North Carolina. <laughs> Who, who has the best barbecue? South oh, Carolina. Oh. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you've got what, that what mustard makes... based versus vinegar based. Uh. Okay. It's a mustard based. Do you, are you a mustard yeah. fan? I'm a mustard uh, fan. But then uh, I grew up in South Carolina. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I grew up in Louisiana. We, we don't have anything signature about our barbecue, but it does taste good. It's just there's. Everybody else has something like really distinct and good about theirs. I just say, I think Louisiana just mixes it all together, kind of like a yeah. gumbo, and then that's their barbecue. Hey, that, but that's a really good analogy. That's really I like good. that. But I, I haven't had anything bad in New Orleans or Louisiana. The food is just phenomenal. I like that perspective too. It's like, uh, is there such thing as bad barbecue? I mean, no. I, yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. you could overcook it or something. You could overcook it. I mean, yeah. it could be objectively bad, but I mean, like, just like stylistically, like, oh man, so good. And I, I feel I, like I, New Orleans is a great anti uh, New Year's resolution for losing weight. Like, it's, it's like the place yeah. you go to gain weight. No, no, you can't go. You can't go. You can't go to New Orleans to, yeah. to lose weight. Well, uh, Cole, did uh, Jocelyn satisfy your you you're definitely getting. <laughs> the reward that Scott mentioned earlier. So well done, Jocelyn. But um, maybe maybe we can try out some nerdery. The nerdery. Um, so because uh, I take it, Jocelyn, you haven't listened before. So the way the nerdery works is we go through some of those articles that we've shared and we just pontificate because that's what we're good at. So the first article, let me see if I can find it real quick. And this is right in your wheelhouse, Jocelyn. I'm very curious to get your perspective on it. Um, Zero-based workforce planning with ChatGPT and Tableau uh, by a person named Scott Rida. Um, I, I don't want to go too much into the GPT or the Tableau part, but I was fascinated by this article introducing the concept of zero-based workforce planning. Yep, which said zero-based workforce planning isn't just a buzzword. It's a strategic imperative. Unlike conventional methods that rely on historical data and incremental adjustments, zero-based workforce planning starts from scratch, challenging preconceived notions about workforce needs. This approach demands a comprehensive understanding of every organizational role, function, activity, um, and activity, fostering a leaner, more agile workforce structure. Now, as a person who's done workforce planning myself in the past and um, having one of the leading experts in the world, have you ever done zero-based workforce planning? And what are your thoughts on this conceptually? Like, it, I'd never even, I've heard of like zero-based budgeting, right? And yes. I think this is like the equivalent of zero-based budgeting, but for your workforce. is uh, what, what are your thoughts on this, Jocelyn? I... So I'll answer that from a theory perspective. I think I understand. Okay. Yeah, you, you're a, an academic too. So come on, bring us some theory. <laughs> I, yeah, from, I think I understand from you know theory perspective of where the author is coming from. 
One of the one of the questions that we as workforce strategists have a difficult time answering is what should we have? Mm-hmm. And so if you think about if you throw out what we have and theoretically you're building a model based on supply and demand and you can accurately understand your demand and then you build your workforce, which is the supply based on that demand, then to me, that's zero-based workforce planning. And so you've answered that, what should we have in the mix of that workforce without relying you know, solely on what we have today? And I think theoretically, yes, it could make sense and it would be a good practice to do every now and then. Couple of just practical points that I wanna make. I've never been able to create a supply and demand model for the entire workforce because that demand is so difficult to define, right? And so- Especially for non-revenue generating functions. Especially for non-revenue generation. Yeah, yeah, we all know that, right? So at the end of the day, that's why I said in theory, it's great, but in practicality, you know, being practical um, and how you operationalize it. I know for me, I just, I've never been able to do that. But I do think it makes sense for certain job families in certain roles. Well, I don't really think it's practical that it could be an exercise that you did every year to you know start from scratch and build your whole workforce up from the ground up. But I was fascinated by the article. And the thing that I think is helpful about it is as a thought exercise, Um, because kind of one of workforce planning's cousins is org design, right? And I imagine what a problem that a lot of organizations run into from an org design perspective is they kind of start tying themselves in knots because they create a problem and then they create a new design to fix the problem. And then that creates a new problem and they create a design to fix that problem. And at certain point, you, you need to have this kind of thought exercise from a workforce planning perspective. We just started over again with a clean slate how would we rebuild this organization and what skills are necessary and what roles and what tasks actually need to get done? And I think in that case, in kind of a narrow case, I think this would be a very powerful tool to have in a workforce planning team's toolkit. But I, again, I agree with your point about demand forecasting is extremely difficult for certain functions. And this, I don't think it would be a practical exercise to do for a whole organization every year. Scott, do you, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you don't, do as much in, in this space, or maybe you do, but what, what are your thoughts on the article? Uh, yeah, I really like what you were just saying there about organizations become so complicated because they have these like pre-existing sort of uh, structures in place. And that's how uh, you try to correct this system over and over and over. But, you know, that leads to additional complications and like you're no longer as agile, you no longer can meet the needs the same way. But then again, like if you're starting over from scratch every single time, people don't have the consistency of, yeah. you know, knowing what their um, uh, structure is, et cetera. So, I mean, there needs to be a balance. I understand uh, where this person is coming from, but you can't start from scratch every single time. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go back to this is another Six Sigma analogy I'm going to give. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was doing Six Sigma work, what we would do is we would start with the demand process. And what you're doing is, is you're looking for, um, you know, your capability of your process. And you wanted to understand during the diagnostic, if your process were able to get to a certain capability or a certain Sigma level, that was enough to meet customer expectations. 
That's how I think about the workforce. If your workforce, I, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask a question about that because I find that there's a lot of people, analytics folks, that are kind of non-initiated in kind of the workforce planning or the Lean Six Sigma space. And when you use a word like demand or demand forecasting, they don't really know like what that is or what it means. Can you give like a simple example of like what a demand uh, forecast for a particular role might look like? So if you, um, I always like to demanding give a demand. <laughs> I always like to, I always like to give like software engineers, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about, and this is an easy one, so you could think about the number of lines of code based on the number of projects, um, you know, layer in, you know, software product, you know, design productivity on top of that. And you could get to, you know, a directionally correct demand number. That's yeah. not. Like it's always fuzzy. That's the, the hidden secret. It, no one it, talks about it. demand is always fuzzy. It's fuzzy because it's not revenue generated generation. You know, you can use gearing ratios, right? So they're, they're just, but it's always, it's never going to be concrete. Um, but so back to the example around the article, mm-hmm. if for some reason you then understand and you look at the capability of your workforce and it doesn't have the necessary, then you go back and redesign. And that's what the article is saying is that we should redesign every time. But my argument would be, you don't want to redesign for the sake of redesigning, to your point, Cole, because now you're going to restructure, you're going to redesign, and you don't want to do that just for the sake of doing that. I'd be curious, uh, this is a personal perspective that I have that I don't know if it's necessarily shared by the workforce planning community, but I've always been in the mind that in an organization on, let's say, an annual basis, that you don't necessarily have to focus extra effort everywhere on doing a workforce plan. There's certain functions that nothing's really changing in. And then there's certain functions where a a lot of things are changing. And my perspective is always just invest your resources in the functions that are changing quite rapidly. Do you agree with that perspective? Or is that, do you think that workforce planning needs to be happening everywhere all the time? No, one of the fundamental beliefs I've had, and I hope, hopefully I've conveyed it on the podcast, segmentation, Mm -hmm. segmentation, segmentation. Yeah. We have, you need to have a segmentation and workforce planning and strategy for everything, including workforce planning. There are certain segments of your workforce or job families where you absolutely need to think about demand supply planning, and you need to build complex models that have supply demand. Others, just as you said, the demand is going to be flat. It has been flat. It's going to continue to be flat you really don't really need to think much about your supply. You just need to you know, understand attrition, vacancy rates, et cetera, model that and you're done. And so you really need to lean in and understand where you need to build more complex models and where models, you know, there's not a need for that level of complexity and segmenting your workforce and your goals every single time will help with that. Nice. Would you, Scott, you wanna talk about the devil that you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is the devil, you know, versus the devil, you don't. Okay. Uh, and like, these are, this deals with uh, people disclosing neurodiversity uh, issues, either proactively or voluntarily, uh, despite them being uh, otherwise con- concealable. 
like I, I can disclose right now that I, I am ill right now. I'd sound awful, obviously. But ideally, this disclosure would mean uh, accommodations for folks, but only 55% of people with neurodiversity issues actually disclose, and only 12% right. actually seek uh, accommodations. And the major reason for this is, you know, the proposed or, you know, potential stigma associated with it. And this leads people to masking or otherwise hiding their neurodiversity traits, uh, which they the argue, the authors argue, uh, leads to a resource strain, which requires time, energy, and effort to, you know, obviously conceal. Uh, I have thoughts on this, but uh, I'll let y'all take the lead here. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one for me. And I know we had Kelsey Colley on a while back um, to talk about this, but I, I think, and I think I agree kind of with her perspective where disclosure is a voluntary process uh, that a person gets to choose, right? And I love how different folks have different strategies. Like some folks will say, never disclose. I guess as a consequence, I'm going to have to mask like this article says, and that's kind of a pro and con yeah. approach. And then other people, like the first 10 seconds you meet them, they're like, hey, I just want to let you know that, you know, I I am following XYZ neurodiversity category, and I just want to make you aware of that. And I I think that both are viable, and it, it has to be up to the individual to choose what, like, what they want to disclose. I just don't want to ever get to a situation where, like, you're forcing people to Agreed. disclose something if they don't want to disclose it. No, Agreed. of course not. I, yeah, I think it always should be a choice. Yeah. What's your perspective, Scott? I, I think that, um, I, well, A, everyone is masking and doing impression management all day, every mm -hmm. day, right? Like if, if you're in a job, like you're doing that anyway. And like to your point, I, I see people, uh, you know, almost gleefully proclaim, like I have a learning disability. And the boy's like, that's a risky, that's a risky call. That's a risky call to start putting that out in the universe, right? Because that, that obviously colors people's uh, opinions yeah. of you or like your projected, you know, future impact that you can make and all this sort of stuff. If you are in a position where you feel like it is just a ton of effort and uh, resource drain to just maintain a normal working relationship, maybe it's not the role or the company for you. Maybe it's time to start thinking about a different sort of avenue because it, it doesn't feel sustainable. It doesn't yeah. feel sustainable to actually do. Yeah. I think all these things are a matter of degree. Absolutely. Right? It's a spectrum. Right. Like, and I think, you know, imagine you are the person who does disclose the learning disability and kind of like what we were saying earlier about perspective taking, I imagine they're hoping that other people are willing to, you know, lean into empathy and kind of take their perspective on how they have things. But at the same time, there's also the the notion, kind of to your point, Scott, that um, you know not every job is for every human being, neurodiverse or non-neurodiverse, right? And that we want to make sure that we're setting every person in our organizations up for success and providing reasonable accommodations where appropriate. And and so I don't know. I I feel like what what I hope is that we just treat people like human beings, you know. Like if you disclose something at work, we should not treat you any differently. And that, you know, it, it should be something that is, is even sometimes celebrated about an individual because frankly, I think, you know, having a different kind of background brings perspective and, you know, that diverse perspective helps organizations perform better because it, it like decreases the blind spots that we have. 
Yeah. That, that's absolutely true. The diverse perspectives absolutely helps make better decisions. It makes a company a better place. Exactly. Yeah. And also, um, you know, from a data privacy perspective, if I choose to disclose a neurodiversity, then, mm-hmm. you know, it's only to a certain, you know, amount of people on a need to know basis that yeah. can, you know, leverage that data and use that data and be empathetic and are ensuring that, you know, providing the accommodations, um, you know, so that it becomes a win-win and we can be more productive. And so there's, there's also the confidence that if I disclose that, you know, I still have my rights and, um, in your, you know, protecting my privacy as well. I think you bring up a really valid point. We, we haven't talked about it in a while. Uh, about like data privacy, right? And making sure that not just for neurodiversity, but any kind of of data that is, you know, personal in nature that gets disclosed, only gets disclosed. Like you have to, it's, it's, it's like a people process technology problem. You have to have the people component to it, the process that allows it, and the technology that allows for you to only share on a need to know basis, have permissionings, have governance, and all the like related things because honestly we don't you don't see a lot of people talking about it publicly but this is a core issue on almost every people analytics team out there is we're dealing with data that you know people you know they we you know they know we have it but they don't necessarily want everybody to be able to see i always use the example of your social security number you know do you want everybody on earth to see your social security number obviously not and so like do we have the right processes in place that we can protect it when it's necessary, but also that we can disclose it when it's necessary, you know, for like governmental forms or something like that. And you have to be able to do both effectively. Yeah. And that, and it goes beyond, I mean, that you bring up a really good point because I've been reading some articles around like an employee bill of rights around data, because then I'll go back to, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'm really focused on AI because I think it's going to be, a you know, not think, but I know it's going to be a game changer for us. You know, a privacy around what I do, you know, on my laptop all day in terms of how I perform a task. Think about that. I mean, so that's yeah. just like, a yeah, no, I mean, that's not, you know, it's not my social security number. I'm not, you know, infringing on my rights, but I as an associate and employee, you might think that you are. That's an interesting point. And I, I, I'm trying to think of a quick example off the top of my head of like, in my, in the, me, the immediate one that came to my mind, but I don't necessarily mean this because there's other good examples, but it's like if a employee, you know, serves social media from their work computer, you know, for 20 minutes during yeah. a day. And, yeah. And like, in who, like, is that even allowed? First of all, like, are they breaking? But let's presume that there's no policy against it. And how much should an employer be monitoring that type of stuff? Not only monitoring, but hoovering up all that data too, because there's yes. ways of like collecting mm-hmm. data about it, like, and, and all of those type of things. I, I don't know. Do you guys have a perspective on that? Yeah. yeah I, At the I end of the day, you, you're, you're, yeah. you're paid to do a job. Yeah, uh, and to be productive and getting that job done is the end goal, right? If, if you need to take a break, fine. Obviously, we don't want any sort of like legal implications of you know surfing pornography or anything else that would possibly get a uh, company in trouble. But at the end of the day, 
I treat them like adults. Uh, do your job, etc. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Don't disclose any company secrets. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I will say the one what? thing they. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What? No, no, Jocelyn, please. You're you're, you're cooking. Yeah, do it. Yeah, I was just gonna say one thing that comes to mind: remote work and the definition of it. So mm-hmm. I know some companies that notice say, none of us are in an office right now, right? So right, this is very exactly. salient. Yeah. I know some companies that are stating their remote work policy is, is that okay, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina right now. So Jocelyn, your remote location is Charleston. We expect you to work from Charleston. So what if I say I'm remote and I'm working from Charlotte or I'm going down to Louisiana? Still very productive. Mm-hmm. But you've seen that my location has changed. Yeah. Now am I? Because now you're tracking my location. That's, That's a bit weird. right. Yeah. And yeah. have I now vi- have now have I violated policy? Those Sarah, I got the- a question. Yeah, I got a question about this exact related thing at a prior employer, and like, so I had this employee that was working for me that was going to travel out of the country. Um, and they were working, everybody was working remote, the whole company was remote and, and they were wondering, you know, could they just, and it was like on the other side of the world. So they're wondering, could they just stay up all night and work during that and, and just, you know, work from there. And I said, honestly, with you, you having like a background on your zoom right now, you could be in that other country and I wouldn't know. (laughs) Right. And so like, there was really no way of validating it other than some kind of tracking mechanism. But I just feel like that that's the world we're living in now. If you're having some kind of remote-based policy, you've got to have the flexibility associated with it to allow people, as long as they're not breaking any laws like or any tax implications for being like overseas or something like that, like to, to just be flexible to what they're doing, again, as long as it aligns to company policies. Yeah. That's the thing is the compensation implications of working in a different state. For instance, a state that has no mm-hmm. state income tax versus a state that does. Exactly. And how long did you work there? And then how do I, you know, then how do I track that? So, but by tracking that, you're essentially tracking my location. Is that okay from a privacy perspective? And of course, the workaround, they would say, we're not tracking your location. We're tracking our work asset. Your laptop is an asset of the organization. (laughs) We're just tracking its location. Right. Exactly. So I think, you know, these are, you know, in our quest to gather more data so we have more information so we can be better at analytics and planning. These are just some of, I think, some of the big privacy issues that, you know, that we're going to have to work through along the way. Absolutely. Well, I've got one more article to discuss. It was, this was, uh, this was like baiting me. I was like, I ha- I saw this one posted. I was like, oh, we got to talk about this. Um, and, and so it's by Rob Briner, who we've talked about before on the pod. But yeah. Evidence-based HR and people analytics are the same thing, right? Afraid not. Yeah. And so I go down to this chart. There, he talks about but a, a whole lot of things about how what people analytics is, what's evidence-based HR, how are they like, how are they different? But he creates a chart talking about how he believes that they are different. And just for your sake, Jocelyn, in case you don't know who Rob is, he's kind of the the purveyor. I don't know if he's the creator, but at least the purveyor of evidence-based HR. And I just looked at this chart and I, I said, I disagree. <laughs> I don't know, in short form, he, he talks about like types of evidence, people analytics, mostly quantitative, evidence-based HR, any type of evidence counts as long as it's trustworthy and relevant. 
And I, just in my mind, I think he paints people analytics into a corner of what it necessarily isn't. Um, it's like, like every definition of evidence-based HR in here is very like generous. And every definition of people analytics is very narrow. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, they're both really similar. And so I had a, I don't even know if this is a real concept, but I had an old colleague who used to call this like the narcissism of small differences, right? So you have something that are so close. They're not maybe identical, but they're so close that all we do is we point out the differences. I think people analytics is beautiful. And I think evidence-based HR is beautiful. We've had guests on like uh, Nicholas Brimner, who's a big proponent of evidence-based HR in the past. And guess what? He's a people analytics practitioner. And so I just wish that we could, I don't know, all get along and not focus on the differences because I think we both learn from each communities just as effectively. I don't know, what, what did you all take away from this article? I like, yes, yes. I, I think that uh, I, A, uh, what Rob is doing is exceptionally valuable in, in the sense of like he's saying like, if you're making people decisions, I won't say uh, evidence-based or people analytics, that you use scientific method and mm -hmm. uh, very data sources is two principles there. But yes, uh, to he's he's essentially creating a, a taxonomy between the two, which is like very finely split. It reminds me of the Cattell Horn model of general intelligence, where it's like you got these big factors, and you subset it into like a smaller factor, and you subset it into a smaller factors. Which at this point, it would be a people analytics and uh, evidence based HR. But overall, the goal is to make better decisions through prediction, and like that's the name of the game. And there's it, it, is there you're cutting hairs. Uh, that's why I see it. Yeah, and that's why I didn't because that's how I saw it. it it's it's better decision making based on well, evidence, data, whatever you need to make better decision decisions around HR practices, people. That's our goal, and yeah. and how you do it. Yeah, it's a little nuance between the two, but it's always going to be there. Prediction is the name of the game. That, that's yeah. the currency. Yeah. Well, and they're and, both valuable. You, you guys both know this. How often do we find an insight that is just like a smoking gun? There's no ambiguity. We know like almost for certain or at least very probabilistically that this is likely to be a univariate cause to whatever's going on. Or a, And oh the reality God. is, and this is what yeah. I've taken from the evidence-based HR literature, is you have to kind of take the legal standard of a preponderance of evidence. evidence. So we see kind of multiple sources. They all kind of give a little bit of a signal in one direction. And so we kind of aggregate those together and say, you know, some might be qualitative, some might be quantitative. And we say, okay, we don't know this with 100% certainty, but this is what the signals are saying. And that to me is evidence-based HR, but it's also people analytics and both are really, really important and valuable. Okay. Absolutely. And if, if you've ever seen like an overlap of like what the statistical difference of like 0 0.001 is on like a two, <laughs> like a two-tailed distribution, it's like yeah. the overlap is immense. Like you think it's like totally separate? No, yeah. hardly ever. And like with like to your point, like you throw in like situationally specific or different sort of characteristics and like different confounds, etc. To find a single cause is almost impossible. Um but like once again like if you get like a 0.1 better increase in your prediction quality especially if you have uh what jocelyn say they have two million associates average that over two million people you're doing a hell of a lot better it's, it's incremental improvement better. it's it's improvement yeah. right and that's the name of the game to get better 
Um, and I will say this just as a community, the more we, and I call it split hairs, and we don't come together and really solve the problems that our leaders and our businesses want us to solve, and we're splitting hairs about the difference between evidence-based mm -hmm. HR and people analytics, where there's some bigger questions out there that we need to be answering. And oh, I'm going to need be air five for that, Jocelyn. Yeah. And we're going to need both. We're going to need both communities and all communities um, to be able to do that. Well, you must be able to do some fascinating experiments, Jocelyn, with that oh sample God. size. I was just thinking about it with Scott. So I was yeah. like, gosh, that must be just a fascinating job. But you, I mean, I can't agree more with what you just said, but you've been a fantastic guest today. Uh, Scott, any final words for Jocelyn before we give her the last word? Jocelyn, this is a lot of fun. I look forward to my little vest you're going to send me. Yeah. yeah. I can't okay. wait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll also introduce you to, where, where are you located again, Scott? I'm in Seattle. Seattle. Oh, Seattle okay. Washington. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to get you a vest in, in a store. Oh, or a club. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Scott, your yeah. greeter material, man. You've got, yeah. you've got all the. Yeah. So all I, the I, I invite you, when I, send you, when I send you the vest, I invite you to come on a, a store club <laughs> tour with me. <laughs> all right well jocelyn you've been fantastic and you've been listening to directly correct a people analytics podcast with colin scott and jocelyn caldwell thanks jocelyn uh -huh, thank you all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization hey guys direction and correct is dedicated to you our listeners to help educate and entertain you on how to effectively do people analytics by supporting this podcast, you are helping us continue to provide valuable insights and knowledge to our listeners. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes or at patron.podbean.com slash directionally correct. Thanks for your support. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a people analytics podcast with Colin Scott.